This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Happy holidays and welcome to Kick-Ass News. This Christmas, as we tear into our gifts under the tree and gorge on turkey, pie, and way too much candy, we'd all do well to remember those who don't have any presents to open, who might not have anything to eat, much less a Christmas feast, who have no family, and might not think that anyone sees any goodness or value in them. Anyone, except my guest today, who has dedicated his life to reaching out and offering hope and redemption to those whom many would consider incapable of salvation. Oh, and since it's Christmas, I should mention that by his own admission, my guest today bears a striking resemblance to jolly old St. Nick. Father Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. Now in its 30th year, Homeboy traces its roots to when Boyle, a Jesuit priest, served as pastor of Dolores Mission Church, the poorest Catholic parish in Los Angeles, which also had the highest concentration of gang activity in the city. Homeboy has since become the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and re-entry program in the world and employs and trains gang members and felons in a range of social enterprises as well as provides critical services to thousands of men and women each year who walk through its doors seeking a better life. Father Boyle has received the California Peace Prize, the James Beard Foundation Humanitarian of the Year Award, and the University of Notre Dame's Terre Medal. He was inducted into the California Hall of Fame and named a 2014 Champion of Change by the White House. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, which he's followed up with a new book titled Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Today, he'll talk about what inspired him to start Homeboy Industries, how he fosters kinship between the most unlikely of friends, rival gang members, and how more often than not, it's just a matter of getting two people in the same room. He also says a healthy dose of humor doesn't hurt. He talks about how law enforcement leaders are getting involved, what he's learned from testifying in 50 death penalty cases, and how the church can do more to reach out to those he calls the people in the margins. Plus, he shares some of his more amusing interactions with the former gang members he calls his homies, and some of the homies' favorite interactions with President Obama, Diane Keaton, and other celebrities who've visited Homeboy Industries over the years. It's an inspiring holiday message of hope and compassion with Father Gregory Boyle, coming up in just a moment. Father Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. And now he's followed it up with his latest book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Father Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great being here. First, for anyone who's not familiar with Homeboy Industries, tell us a little bit about what Homeboy Industries does. Uh, well, we've, we're in our 30th year, and so uh, we receive 15,000 uh, folks who walk through our doors every year. The centerpiece piece of the effort is our 18-month training program. 
So the gang members want in on that because it's a paid gig. And so it's all about healing and uh, doing the work, as we call it. And uh, we have nine social enterprises and free tattoo removal therapy, case management, uh, a lot of curricular offerings uh, that help them kind of deepen their own uh, sense of who they are so that they can re-identify, gain some resilience, engage in attachment repair, you might say. And then they leave us, and the, the essential healing has happened if they've cooperated in the 18-month program. How did this idea originally come to you? Well, it, it was evolving. Certainly in the early days, we didn't do all the things we do now, but we started as a school uh, because I was the pastor of a very poor parish with eight gangs at war with each other. So I was burying kids, and, and we had shootings all the time, morning, noon, and night. And wow. so... Um, The first thing I kind of observed were a lot of junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their home school and nobody wanted them. So uh, I walked out to them. I said, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And they all said yes. And then I couldn't find a school that would take them. So we started our own. And I gently asked the nuns if they wouldn't mind terribly vacating the convent, and we turned the convent into a <laughs> school for gang members. <laughs> then they asked for jobs, and so we tried to find felony-friendly employers. And mm-hmm. initially, we began as kind of a dispatcher, you know, let's find jobs for gang members. And that wasn't so forthcoming, so we started to create our own jobs. Why does someone join a gang? Uh, I understand from reading the book, you take issue with the idea that young men just join gangs because they want to belong, right? Yeah, I mean, there are all these notions, you know, and a lot of it comes from people uh, who are outside and kind of trying to figure out what's the rational rationale for this kid to join a gang. Oh, I know what it must be. They must, uh, it must be a sense of belonging. Or I was in a, uh, a major city in this country, and the chief of police handed me one of those brochures they give to parents. They kind of, these are the signs that your kid is gravitating perilously close to a gang. And and then writ large in this little brochure, the number one reason why kids join gangs. And it had the huge word excitement. (laughs) Now, if I were to compile a list of 200 reasons why a kid joins a gang, excitement wouldn't appear on my list. But that's how it works. You're outside it and you kind of try to enter the mind and you go, oh, belonging, oh, excitement. And none of that's true. So no kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's always fleeing something, which Mm -hmm. is a key moment. If you can address what the kid is fleeing, then you've really done something significant. Yeah, and in the book, Barking to the Choir, you talk a little about how a lot of times it sounds like you often find yourself at odds with the local cops. You talk about the cops who tell homies, oh, Father Greg ain't shit, and Homeboy Industries ain't shit. What is it that they're missing about all this? Well, I think those stories and quotes are uh, from a number of years ago, so I'm, okay. I'm hopeful that, that the attitudes have changed it, it, you know, it, or, or have probably gone underground a little bit because mm-hmm. the higher echelon leadership in law enforcement, both the sheriffs and the LAPD, uh, support Homeboy. But now, whether that actually trickles down to the rank and file is another question. Mm-hmm. But in the bad old days, when the demonizing was kind of uh, huge and pervasive and whole cloth, um, 
cops would be more provocative that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in the first 10 years when we had death threats, bomb threats, and hate mail, the mail, wow. the anonymous letters, were mainly from law enforcement. It was odd. You huh. know what? I'm a cop. I'm LAPD. I hate you. You're part of the problem. And they wouldn't sign their name, but they would identify as a police officer. So now those days ended 20 mm-hmm. years ago, the first oh. 10 years, certainly. Yeah. So time. now you find that at least in the upper echelon of law enforcement, they seem to understand and appreciate what you're doing at Homeboy Industries. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, the chief of police, uh, Charlie Beck, who's wonderful and enlightened, he has his um, meeting with his uh, brass mm-hmm. at our Homegirl Cafe on Tuesdays. Huh. So, I mean, that's a huge— That's a good uh, endorsement. <laughs> yeah, a huge change from yeah. from Daryl Gates, you know, who was— uh, you know, we were fraternizers with the enemy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't have any time for homeboy. You say that anytime you go on Dr. Phil or Anderson Cooper, any of these shows, at some point toward the end of the interview, they usually try to, you know, give equal time to the cops or the naysayers or whatever. And they'll give you some version of, aren't you being taken advantage of by these gang members? So I guess I'll start with that and just say, how do you respond to them when they say that? Well, it you kind of – well, I, in the book I mentioned how Anderson Cooper said, you know, the cops say that, that gang members take advantage of you. And I always say, how can somebody take your advantage if you're giving your advantage? Yeah. <laughs> and so – but it's always that kind of, well, the cops say you won't give them information. Mike Wallace did that once, you know. <laughs> and – uh you won't give them up. You know, I remember him doing that with a room full of gang members. <laughs> and and then I remember he said, turn to one gang member. They all called Koala. That was his gang name, <laughs> Koala. And they said, he won't give you up. Why won't he give you up? Why do you think he won't give you up to the police? <laughs> and the guy looked at him and he said, God, I guess, he said. <laughs> and I thought that was wild. But again, it was the same ilk. Mm-hmm. It was, you know um, – when 60 Minutes and a producer called and said, Mike Wallace, you're going to get good Mike, you know, yeah. meaning the oh. the one who's not going to try to <laughs> yeah. no, the gotcha subvert, stuff. not gotcha stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and yet they have to have something, you know, so cops mm-hmm. don't like you or cops say, you know who did something, which is yeah. kind of goofy. Yeah. I mean, in what universe am I going to say well, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> but that was an expectation, yeah. and that's that was one of the things they'd all often say. You know, cops say you know stuff and you don't come forward. And I go, oh, that's not hard to understand. And, and it's hard to imagine why anyone in law enforcement would want to attack you for what you're doing. Even if they disagree with your methodology, you're clearly trying to do something good. You're well, tra- it's, you're it's clearly, a little akin to if I were running a drug rehab instead of a gang rehab Mm -hmm. and and you really hated what drugs did to your family and to your loved ones would anybody hate somebody who was running a drug rehab yeah no you you kind of get it oh oh, this helps this is where somebody can go to leave that life behind Mm -hmm. how hard is that yeah i've never gotten it either except for the fact that demonizing is always an untruth and people embrace it. And mm-hmm. especially currently in our country, I think that happens. And so, yeah. but you can take that to the bank that demonizing is 
untruth. So when you catch yourself doing it, you can go, oh, no, that's wrong. That's completely wrong. But keep in mind, 30 years ago, that was really the the pervasive mm-hmm. sense was these are the bad guys. You talk about sort of the first step in this process, which is just simply to connect. You talk about trying to build kinship, basic human-to-human relations. When someone comes to you from such a different background and such a different life experience, how do you connect with them? Well, I think at Homeboy, you know, it's not so much what you do. It's it's a stance. It's a hmm. posture. You know, can you receive people? Can you allow yourself to be reached by this guy who just walked in the door? The, you know, I, I always say that, you know, if love is the answer, you know, community is the context. But tenderness is the methodology. So tenderness is the thing that that connects. Mm-hmm. That's when love becomes connective tissue. And that may feel amorphous, you know, that the glance, the gesture, the look, the the kindness, that is so powerful in the world, and especially with this population, precisely because it's foreign. They go, wow, you, you know, they may not use the word tenderness. They might say kindness. Uh, but they they respond to it like a dry sponge that's been hit with water. So there's a certain degree of patience, letting them come to you or letting them open up to you. Yeah, I mean, we, there's no kind of uh, aggressive anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's up to you. We we don't like people who have homies who have been brought in by somebody else. Oh, really? Yeah, we want no. You you freely have to walk through the door because huh. we know what it. We can't want it more than you. So, and that we do that, especially with the younger guys. Someone will come in and say, they got them in a headlock and they go, this guy needs this program. Yeah. Yeah, this won't work until he wants this program. And again, it's the same as with drug rehabs. You know, it's never for those who want it. It's only, it's only never for those who need it. It's only for those who want it. So you have to deeply want it enough to walk through the doors Mm -hmm. freely. And in a similar vein, you say that people often ask you, when do you bring a gang member to religion? And you say, never. It was a question in Australia where the guy said, when do you introduce Christ Mm -hmm. to the gang member? And I said, never and immediately, you know, because it's there's something about the relationship that is wholly and completely rooted in the gospel and who Jesus is. So, Mm -hmm. um you know, some woman after I preached at this huge mega Christian church, like 10,000 people. And afterwards, this woman said, yeah, your stories are all well and good. The only question worth asking is, do you bring gang members to Christ? And I said, no, they bring me to Christ. Oh, interesting. And uh, needless to say, she didn't like that answer very much. So, <laughs> Yeah, it seems like so much of this is you, you talk about it in terms of a reciprocal relationship and what you get out of it as well. Well, it's even more than that. You know, I always talk about the exquisite mutuality, mm-hmm. you know, where there is no, no daylight that separates you. And so beyond that, it's not about saving gang members or rescuing them or mm-hmm. – and even in the book, I take on the notion of make a difference because everybody says that. You know, I just want to really? make a difference. Yeah. And I say, well, when you want to make a difference, it is always about you. There's no other way to, to make so that true. about anything <laughs> yeah. else but yeah. you because yeah. you 
are making the difference. Yeah. But if you go to the margins so that the folks on the margins make you different, well, that's a whole other thing. And and that's actually the, the methodology mm-hmm. because it's now you're allowing yourself to be reached by somebody on the margins. Now mm-hmm. you're receiving somebody. Now you're allowing yourself to be shaped by another person, especially somebody who's poor and um, on the margins. Yeah. Specifically between members of rival gangs, how do you get sworn enemies to let go of entrenched ideas about each other and connect with each other? Or how do they do it? I probably shouldn't phrase it as how do you get them to do it. How do they do it? Well, common interest is is the the door that they walk through. Mm -hmm. You know, they all want jobs. They want clean, honest, decent money. They want their mom to be proud. They don't want their kids to be ashamed. So that's their common interest. Then they walk in and go, okay, well, you're going to work in the bakery with that guy. And and they always say, well, I'll work with him. I'm not going to talk to him, you know. <laughs> Which and, is impossible probably. Well, I mean, but <laughs> they try it. Yeah. And that used to bother me in my early days. Oh, my God, they're not going to talk to each other. But – once you're in the vicinity of each other, human beings can't sustain demonizing. You you can't pull it off. There's a guy named David who works in the bakery, and he has tattoos on his face, as everybody does. But on his cheekbone, he has the letters of his world's worst enemies, his hated rival. He tattooed that on his face really? just so that he could tattoo two lines crossing out that gang on wow. his face. So in the in the arena of provocation, this is just huge. Yeah. So there he is making croissants in the bakery, and next to him is a guy from that gang, the gang of which he has crossed out on his cheek. And they say, you know, that men work things out side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Women work things out face to face, but but I think that's my experience. So the two of them, enemies, sworn enemies, they don't talk ever, but they're making croissants, you know. And, and one day David had a day off, and he went to our tattoo removal you know, clinic, which is in our headquarters, and he says, I want you to take this one off. And so it's wow. many treatments, but they did the first treatment. And so the next day he's there making croissants. They're not talking. Until finally David turns to him and he he just says, I'm getting this tattoo off. It's because of you. You're good people. Wow. That was it. They didn't discuss it (laughs) beyond that. It was just sort of an announcement. Hmm. And now they're uh, quite quite good friends. Wow, that's amazing. Proving that you really can't sustain the demonizing part. Yeah. When there's distance and separation— and division, maybe you can, mm-hmm. but put people in the vicinity of each other, and that's impossible. Yeah, it seems like that's an important message for these times. I mean, when you look at the news and the racial tension around the country and the political divisiveness, what are the solutions to you? How do we connect and better foster that kind of kinship that you talk about in this book? I think we're always trying to kind of address issues, mm-hmm. and I don't think that ever works. I think it begins by people not taking the right stand on issues but standing in the right place. And that's huh. why vicinity is such a good point. You know, the more you can kind of stand somewhere, 
especially with the demonized other, and that's true of anybody, then you discover that whatever you thought was dividing you was really about something else. It was about, you know, an ignorance of how people operate and who they are. And then once you're in people's vicinity, you know, then tenderness can happen where you go, wow, this this guy's interesting and hilarious and mm-hmm. kind. Well, that's probably not going to happen when you get in each other's vicinity uh, behind a police barricade during a protest. Yeah, you know, it's uh, people want to address things from some kind of systemic aerial view how do we address yeah. Yeah. racism? And I, mm-hmm. I, I, good luck. Yeah. You know, because no kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, mm-hmm. no kinship, no equality, no matter how singularly focused you might be on those really worthy goals, unless there's some undergirding sense that we belong to each other, it can't happen. So, so work for kinship, watch what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, start from work, the ground up. You work for connection with, with the people around you. And watch what happens. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Father Gregory Boyle when we come back in just a minute. There's a lot of humor in this book, and I wonder, is that one of the best tools to use humor in everyday interactions with the homies? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, and uh, or is it just, or is it just another thing that's innate? <laughs> it's not something you think about. You don't but. think about it. This morning, I was texting, and a guy was just really came at me foul, came at me sideways. Huh. I said, "Look, son, I've known you a long time. I know you're not a dick, <laughs> but apparently, you play one on TV. You know, it's like, <laughs> what is your problem?" And so the banter goes back and forth. Part of it has to do with comfort level, you know. They call me sarcastic, and I and I am. One one homie said, if they ever give out an award for most sarcastic human being, your sarcastic ass is going to win it, he said. <laughs> but that happens, you know, because yeah. you're – part of it is, you know, I come from a large family, so there are eight of us, and that is oh, how wow. we operated. <laughs> yeah. It just was hilarious, but yeah. it was also – Take no prisoners. You yeah. know, it was yeah. unfortunately. Each other and oh, yeah. Around. I mean, so we were never, oh, gosh, how are you feeling about that? Oh, <laughs> hell no. You know, we just, it was ruthless. So I've carried that into my life. But that's the thing. You know, people will say, oh, my God, it must be so hard. You know, I go, well, no, it's mainly hilarious mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> and I think this book probably has more uh, tattoos on the heart. The first book, you know, it, it was really born in the first 20 years, and especially the decade of death, which was 88 to 98. And I was bearing, at one point, eight kids in a wow. three-week period. Oh, my God. So there are a lot of stories where and, – and the, the goal in those days, especially when I spoke, was how can I get this audience not to demonize the gang member? Mm-hmm. How can I get them to stand in awe at who these kids are rather than in judgment? Mm-hmm. at how they've navigated their lives. So so they were always the same. They in many ways, I mean they were true stories, but it would you know there would be the charming funny Oh, I love this kid. I love this kid. Oh, I love this kid. I mean the audience is saying. And then the kid gets killed. After uh-huh. the kid has come to all these discoveries of who they are and and so there are a lot of stories like that in tattoos. Mm-hmm. And but that was reflective of the time in which yeah. I was writing it and I was living. This is different. This is, has kind of a lighter be, yeah, because we're compared we, to the be, other book. Because yeah. we're out yeah. of 
that period where where kids were dying all the time. Yeah. So you you do feel that in some ways you've turned a corner. Well, I think we have as a city in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. in the county. So 1992, we had a thousand gang-related homicides, but it's never been higher than 1992. And then, since then, it's been that number has been cut in half and then cut in half again. So, you know, you see that. The numbers bear that out. Oh yeah. So you kind of get complacent. Yeah. And which we ought not to do, and things are are um, starting to escalate again. Though I don't believe we'll ever arrive at that horrific time. You say that there are some of these homies who you look at and you admit you're not sure that they're going to be able to turn the ship around. Do you ever invest any less in those ones? No, but I mean my experience, and I think that that lead in. Uh, led to a story of a kid who just magnificently turned it around. Yeah, exactly. So, so there was a there was yeah. always uh, part of the problem is um, they have to carry such enormous horrific burden, mm-hmm. and some of them, the mental health torment is so huge that you don't know how to, and that that happens a lot. Where in the end, there's not a thing that we can do unless we get this guy to surrender to his own healing. Mm-hmm. And if he refuses to do it, especially with a mental health issue compounded and exacerbated by a drug issue, then there's not much we can do except stand by and say, mm-hmm. we're ready when you are. But no amount of me wanting that guy to have a life will ever be the same mm-hmm. as that guy wanting to have one. So yeah, so we have to wait. And that was harder in my earlier years than it is now. Now I know it just comes with the territory. Yeah, it must be hard when you obviously care about these people's well-being and you're rooting for them to succeed, you're investing in their rehabilitation. When someone falls back in with a gang or, heaven forbid, gets killed, how do you cope with that? How do you get past that? Well, I've accepted that relapse happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I've buried a lot. I've buried 222 kids. And um, obviously there's some kids you're closer to to than others, you know, but it's heartbreaking, you know, but you also get, you have to get to a place, even as an adult, where you can put death in its place. You Mm -hmm. know, if death is the worst thing that's going to happen to you, or you think death is the worst thing that can happen to you, you're, you're not paying attention. So you want to compile the lists of fates worse than death and things more powerful than death. It's interesting to me that you say the homies often talk about things in terms of paths, in that I'm on a new path or I've left that path. You say that's not the way to look at it. It's all part of the journey. Yeah, I mean— You can't separate part of Part of that path um, mentality is uh, I used to be bad and now Mm -hmm. I want to be good. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're always trying to chip away at that notion because it's not true. You've always been good. Hasn't been a day when you haven't been. Now you haven't always operated out of that goodness, mm-hmm. or or a full realization that you are. Mm-hmm. This morning, a wonderful woman, a homegirl, got up and she did the thought for the day, and it was beautiful. And she was so nervous, and it was powerful because she was very, it was very heartfelt. But again, her language was all, "I used to be this terrible person," and and that happens, and you understand it, and yet. For 30 years, I've worked with gang members. I've never met a bad guy. I've never met an evil person, ever. So it's not a very sophisticated place to be. You know, it's an understandable place, mm-hmm. you know. And, and she was articulating it, 
you know, as best she could, that this change has happened. But as she characterized what her life was like before, you know, I want to say, yeah, and, and unspeakable things were done to you, you know. And this isn't to excuse behavior, but, but it's, you know, the hope is to explain, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what you want them to do is get to a place where they go, oh, I see. That's why I joined the gang. Yeah. That's why I did that. That's why I got high. I was self-medicating. Mm-hmm. You want them to deepen their own understanding. Yeah, I mean, obviously, none of this happens in a vacuum. One of the most intriguing things that you mention in the book is that as part of this program, you teach the homies and the homegirls how to play with children. A lot of them probably have kids that they may not have had much of a, a relationship with because they've been in prison and they just got out. And you say that that experience often leads to them living out their own lost childhood as well and dealing with that. Yeah, it's a program called Baby and Me, so it's every Friday at 9.30, and and the homies and homegirls who have toddlers mm-hmm. bring them in, and just for an hour and a half. And so they take over the big, huge classroom. We have uh, pediatricians from General Hospital. We have our own counseling staff. And they play. All it is is play. You know, they clay and watercolors, and, a, and they have a big—oh, they always have this big, huge— uh, multicolored kind of parachute thing where they put kids in the middle and they all get around and toss the kid, which cannot be safe, but they do it anyway. <laughs> and it's singing and and homies are on the floor playing uh-huh. with their kids. So in the book, I tell the story of this guy, Big Mike, who wanders in and, and sees the singing and the dancing and the multicolored parachute and asks Teresa, one of the therapists, can I sign up for this class? And she goes, sure. And she starts to take his name. And he says, do you have to have a kid to be in it? And yeah, sort of the idea, you know, but there's no doubt in anybody's mind the guy was a child. But I doubt seriously he ever had a childhood. And and so then there's this vicarious thing. So if you think about the first 18 months, how essential it is when you're a child and you attach to your caregiver. And then after 18 months, you start to separate you start yeah. to you start to understand who you are as your own identity as separate from the caregiver. It's interesting that our training program is eighteen months, which I never <laughs> yeah, it never yeah. occurred to me. Yeah, until someone I was talking yeah. to and they said, "Oh, that's interesting." I said, "Wow, I, we just arbitrarily landed on eighteen, but now I can see. Oh, that makes sense because if attachment is the goal of the first eighteen months of life, attachment repair." is really the goal of the 18 months that they're with us. So mm-hmm. I, I like that. You know, Now I'm starting to think it wasn't so arbitrary. It was yeah. that there's an intentionality about it that I, I, I appreciate. Yeah, and some of the more, I guess, amusing or, or, or endearing moments in the book involve when celebrities have come and visited you guys, everyone from President Obama to Jim Carrey. Um, it's interesting what happens when former gang members and a president or a movie star interact. Do you have a favorite story like that? Uh, well, it, probably the most famous one was uh, Diane Keaton, who showed up and was having lunch and and big movie star, Oscar winner. And her waitress is Glenda, and she, Glenda doesn't know who she is. And Glenda's a big girl, you know, tattooed, uh, felon, gang member been to prison. So she's taking Diane Keaton's order and Diane Keaton uh, 
says, well, what do you recommend? And Glinda rattles off the three dishes that she particularly likes. And, and it, for some reason, at that moment, something dawns on Glinda. She looks at Diane Keaton. She says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you from somewhere, you know, like maybe we've met. And Diane Keaton sort of deflects it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces that people think they've seen before. And then, and then Glinda goes, no, now I know we were locked up together, she says. You know. <laughs> and I remember a staff member had come to tell me that right away, and I just, it rendered me a breathless. Uh, and I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton no. sightings. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. Somebody told That's me, funny. she she had written a book or a memoir, and somebody uh-huh. was interviewing her, and they wrote me and said, oh, she mentioned that story oh, really? uh, on um, <laughs> On an interview, so. <laughs> you must have certain viewpoints on criminal justice reform. Let's say that magically God made you <laughs> the grand poobah of criminal justice in America or the <clears throat> world. What kind of reforms would you want Again, to enact? I, I'm, I'm not good on the aerial view policy thing. You right, Because people right. will say mass incarceration, yeah. and I'll go, yeah, I'm against it. You know, what we do mainly in this country is, is we – try to calm the cough of the lung cancer patient rather than deal with the lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And we do that consistently everywhere. So people focus on the violence. If we can get fewer bullets to fly on Wednesday night than flew on Tuesday night, we have, uh, we're having good outcomes. And yet nobody's getting underneath this. What does this mean? What language is the violence speaking? I want to know the language. Because if you know the language, you go, oh, wait, this is the language of the despondent or of the mentally ill. You've testified in, I think, 50 death penalty cases. And more often than not, when a prosecutor asks you, why did this person do this? You say, well, they must have some type of mental illness, which in some ways is a very logical conclusion. So what they want you to do is somehow cosign, the -hmm. prosecution does, on their demonizing. And isn't this, what would you say about a person who did that, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I've, the most recent one I did was, you know, a couple months ago, and the defendant was talking to himself. I mean, literally, I don't mean just, his head would turn to somebody who wasn't there. Really? And then he'd listen to the the person talking to him. And I'm going, is anybody else noticing that this guy's talking to himself? It's like Charlie Manson died recently. And I was watching, you know, the news and they had some seasoned newscaster who who was a you know a reporter or something during that the Charlie Manson uh, murders and he gets on and he says you know Charlie Manson was pure evil this he was so calculating uh he knew exactly what he was doing hmm. then they cut to a kind of an old interview i think that somebody did a documentary and they asked Charlie Manson in, in prison, don't you feel any remorse? He goes, I do. I feel remorse. I wish I had killed 400 people. Yeah. Well, nobody needs to take Psych 101 for credit to know that this is a mentally ill person. Now, once you step back from that, you go, what must it have been like for somebody to carry the weight of that tormenting mental illness? Mm-hmm. I haven't had to carry it. I can't imagine what it must have been like. And that's a dangerous territory for people because then we can't call him pure evil. 
And then even as a priest, and, and I would want somebody to say, now listen to that statement, pure evil, calculating. He knew exactly what he was doing. Try to imagine God agreeing with you. And I think that's impossible, you know, because God knows all the angles and knows all the contours and knows, is sophisticated about in being reverent at the complexity of the human person. And pretty soon you have no more demons. And pretty soon that violent guy is not a bad guy, but he's a traumatized guy or he's a mentally ill guy. And then we roll up our sleeves and we say, wow, you mean everyone belongs to us? Everyone belongs to us. Mm -hmm. And things that we want to change, like mass incarceration, will change once that is embraced. Yeah, and I should mention that Pope Francis is a Jesuit like yourself, so I assume that you feel pretty good about the direction the church is heading in under him. Long may he live. Whoopi Goldberg is interviewed in Vanity Fair, a Q&A, and the question was, what living person do you most admire? And she says, Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. And then she adds this one line, yeah, he's going with the original program. Well, I think every man, woman— and child knows what the original program is. So you want to return to it. You know, you want to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. Inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional, compassionate, loving kindness, and acceptance. When we aren't accepting of women or gays or uh, immigrants or whoever, when we include some and exclude others, we are taking seriously what Jesus took seriously. When we advocate violence, we aren't. When, we're, when we put conditions on our love and kindness and compassion, mm-hmm. we aren't taking seriously what Jesus did. That's the original program. Everybody knows it. But we're frightened, you know. We don't want to – the church sometimes doesn't want to return to the original program. They, they want to return to 1954, which was <laughs> the year I was born. But it was – you know, it's, it, it's another era. It's, yeah. it's kind of – where where it was more clerical, um, and oddly, when Donald Trump won, you know, in the LA Times, somebody, a woman said, "Look, I voted for him because I just want to return. I want America return to return to what life was like when I was a child." And I think, wow, when I was a child, you know. Black folks were still sitting in the back of the bus, and women were Mm second-class citizens, and gays didn't exist. And you just go, I don't want to return to 1954. If you return to the original program rather than 1954, Mm -hmm. it guides who who we will choose to be. Since this will air uh, during Christmas week, what would be your Christmas message, either from this book or in general? What would you want to leave people with? Um, when I was a kid, uh, all my sibs, we discovered buried in a box in the attic was a recording. that and We discovered that our mom was an opera singer before she had eight, eight kids, and huh, she recorded really? Oh Holy Night, you know. Wow. And I remember as a kid just playing the grooves off the thing. And, and there was this line that stayed with me. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. 
And yeah, it's about Jesus, and yeah, it's about Christmas, but it's about people appearing, you know, showing up, listening, allowing themselves to be reached by the other, especially the demonized other, especially by the easily despised. You appear, and the soul feels its worth, not because you have filled that person with worth, but because it is the encounter that is mutually ennobling, and that's the kinship to which we are called. Well, you're doing wonderful work at Homeboy Industries. And where can people find out more or donate? They can go to our website, homeboyindustries.org. Well, the book, again, is called Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Father Greg, thank you for joining me, and Merry Christmas. Same to you. I just want to take this moment to wish all of you listeners a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to come, and to say thanks once more to Father Greg for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship, on Amazon, or download the audiobook on Audible. To donate or find out more about Homeboy Industries, visit homeboyindustries.com. Follow them on Twitter at at homeboyind, and follow Father Greg at at FR Greg Boyle. Today's episode was sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible.com's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash kick, answer a few questions, and right away, you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.